Oh, man. Good morning to most, good afternoon to others, and good evening to the viewing audience across the pond. I'm Jason Miles, your host for another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. If you're new to the channel, please like, subscribe. If you're enjoying what you see, make sure to hit the notification bell as we're constantly adding new episodes and doing cross streams with other channels like we recently did with our bi-monthly news show, Revolutionary Reckoning, with David and Matt of Left Reckoning. We had a complimentary champagne room this past Thursday that went over three hours. We had impromptu guest Professor Dylan Rodriguez, who's on the front lines in the UC teacher strike, giving us some insight on the corporate mindset of higher education administration. And Gene Bajlan also jumped in. It was a good time. Of course, in a three-hour stream, we got into the idea of what is revolution and are we truly seeing any change of people's material conditions in the aftermath of things like the george floyd uprisings it was a spirited discussion to say the least also youtube is not letting us monetize the latest mau mau hour where pascal robert challenges the current state of black political discourse and the meteoric rise of Hakeem Jeffries. So if you enjoy what we do here on TIR and you don't want to succumb to the monthly tyranny of Patreon, then show your support with a super chat, or better yet, merch. I'm gonna bring some up on the screen here. You can wear your support for the show with a lovely t-shirt of people none of your friends, family, or coworkers will have any idea who they are. It'll make you be the coolest kid on the block. Trust me, I know. I wear my leftist, socialist, communist shirt. People definitely stare at me like, what the fuck are you doing wearing that shirt? Also, another big show announcement, January 22nd, we will be bringing our Give Them a Revolution live show to New York City. The Cutting Room, January 22nd, 
very excited. So it'll be This Is Revolution. A lot of more people than just Deep State Cooper are going to be coming. Give them an argument. Left Reckoning Man David will also be joined by Sam Cedar, Emma Viglin, Bashkar Sankara, and many, many more. We don't even know how many people are going to be showing up to this event. So wherever you're watching or listening to the show, there should be links in the description for tickets. They are on sale now. And I will put links in the chat as well for the show. Will Pascal Robert be there at the New York show? Why don't we ask him? Please welcome the host, the man of the Mal, the, my co-host, the man of the Mau Mau Hour, the Pascal Robert. Peace and greetings to the chat. Peace and greetings to the audience. Peace and greetings, Jason Miles. And I'm kind of pissed off that my Mau Hour was demonetized you you talked about the i don't know i don't know what it is we didn't say curse words i don't think i don't think we dropped one m-bomb on that one no they said after a manual review they've been doing that to all of our videos yes yes we have to manual review everything and uh i guess you were too black and too strong for them <laughs> so and you know what YouTube said? We coming oh, for you, nigga! That's what they said. It's incredible, man. Yeah. No, it's it's uh it's it's very frustrating. Um speaking of frustration, let's bring in our favorite British person that's under 30 and under 5'8. Please welcome Stefan Bertram. <laughs> And I I didn't change the lighting. I I just got changed. I'm wearing something black now. Oh, look at you! It's like the it's like your face is brighter. Is that a a pun there, Stefan? Are you trying to say that? No, no. This is is as close you're gonna get to black face. No, no. I took off something black, sports clothing, and put on something black. Um. I haven't been following the World Cup. Oh, USA just got knocked out like 10 minutes ago. Did you cheer? No, I was cheering for USA, unfortunately. <laughs> I was fucking picking the wrong fucking team. I haven't watched a World Cup since, well, Jesus, since I lived with a family that was very deep into the, the football. I've, I've heard the Welsh national anthem a lot because obviously I'm in Wales, not England. Um, is, is Wales winning? Wales, Wales were in the group stage for the first time in 64 years. Uh, and they did absolutely shit. They were the second worst team. <laughs> well, who was the worst team? US? Qatar. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Qatar. All right, Pascal, are you following the World Cup at all? Uh, I'm, I'm not really watching many games, but I'm watching the results. I'm checking out a game every now and then. But I'm finding the revival of interest in the African team is kind of fascinating how everyone's rooting for Senegal and Ghana. It's an interesting little kind of cultural touchstone in uh, the African diaspora. I have seen a lot of my colored friends on social media talking about the World Cup because of African nations, which I think is interesting. Between that and Wakanda forever. 
it's like uh, black people haven't been this happy since 72. Uh, <laughs> I, was I was talking to an American friend about the England team and the other European American teams staying kind of the black players in them. And I was saying that it's interesting that there's several players in the England team who in the United States would be, would be black, but in the United Kingdom aren't considered so, like Kieran Trippier and Kyle Walker would be considered black in the United States, but are considered white, I guess, in the UK. Are they only a quarter? Is that why? Um, Kieran Trippier, yeah, has, is a quarter or an eighth or something. One uh, drop do, you, do, you, do you count quarter black people as black, Pascal? I, listen, man, I, unlike you, do not have these rigid, <laughs> fixed notions of what is appropriate in terms of light skin, dark skin, in terms of color. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe that as long as you identify yourself as black and you have some black heritage, then you can, you know, I'm not an essentialist and you can be black. I don't Most people that were raised as black, you know, basically like in a black culture, right? I don't think it's fixed, man. I mean, you know. Yeah. I think Pascal is lying. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I don't have a thick, fast and loose politics about that, man. I mean, I've seen people who are black in the United States who phenotypically typically look white. That's not uncommon, you know. You look at, you know, some people who are, who are Walter White, who was a member, you know, who was a early NAACP. He looked like uh, Adam Clayton Powell Jr. Those guys <laughs> look white. Somebody but they're black. <laughs> Yano <laughs> says, finally, Pascal acknowledges Dolazel's truth. <laughs> Speaking of quarter black people, I got a, I got a text message from my my cousin, uh, my quarter black niece, is, is having a raffle at school. <laughs> your quarter, your quadroon niece. My God. <laughs> <laughs> I love those kids. So unlike Pascal, I actually love my quadroon family. Oh wow! I don't have a quadroon family, first of all. Oh, see, see how black he is he's like we don't have any <laughs> milk in the coffee <laughs> sorry Pascal some of my uncles like the creamer so oh so he has some I uncles have, that were swirling I have some well I have beige kids all your kids are beige. All my kids are beige. I have all these. Uh, these. That's why we had the Filipino band. Jason hasn't dated a black woman since the eighties. <laughs> well, since like sixth grade. <laughs> <sighs> there's like eight in all of San Diego, and there's of all the black women that you dated. <laughs> <laughs> You leave my personal life out of this. I had like serious things to discuss today, and you guys are over here making jokes that are funny, by the way. 
But yes, please go back and watch the episode of the Mau Mau Hour with Pascal Robert. And if you get a chance, go back and watch the episode we did with Matt and David of Left Reckoning. The whole second half of that, which is usually our champagne room, is free for the public, which was a very spirited discussion um, with Professor Dylan Rodriguez that is on the front lines, like I said, of the UC teacher strike. And leave a comment. Let us know what you think about the discussion. Um, who won? Everything's about winning and losing with you people. Tell us who won. That being said, Pascal, your favorite mayor, Eric Adams, has made the headlines for his controversial plan to tackle a very large homeless problem in his city, forcing mentally ill people into treatment facilities. The proposal has gotten some backlash, but recently in San Francisco, there was a case of a very young child being exposed to the deadly drug fentanyl and needing an emergency Narcan intervention from an article in the SF Chronicle. Thursday, San Francisco politicians expressed shock and anger over news that a baby boy playing two miles away in the marina's Moscone Park had the drug overdose antidote Narcan sprayed into his nose by paramedics. His nanny had spotted him turning blue and called 911. The baby's father, Ivan Matkovic, showed the Chronicle discharge papers from the California Pacific Medical Center stating the diagnosis of accidental fentanyl overdose and reading, Sienna has been observed more than six hours since Narcan was given and is breathing well. The fentanyl should be out of his system. The incident should be a tipping point, tweeted Supervisor Hillary Ronan. I am outraged, tweeted Supervisor Asha Safai in all dramatic all caps. Hopefully this will serve as a wake-up call, tweeted Supervisor Catherine Stefani. None of them are wrong. The incident is horrific. But if this was really a wake-up call for the city's leaders, they've been pressing the snooze button and sleeping through their alarms for the past three years. And while Wait, one... what the fuck are they going to do? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let me finish. And while one would hope a similar incident in any corner of the city would draw the same ire, it's sad it took the near death of a son of a tech CEO in the posh Marina district to prompt such soul-searching. A tenderloin childhood comes with regular encounters with drug paraphernalia and open drug use. Children scurry past dealers to get to school and sidestep bodies splayed on the sidewalk that might be alive or might not. While we must have compassion for adults struggling with addiction, a truly compassionate city wouldn't leave people deteriorating on the sidewalks and force children to be surrounded by chaos. Cedric Akbar, a director of several drug treatment facilities in the city, said the marina could be a poster child for change. But from the Bayview to the Tenderloin, kids have to watch open-air drug markets on their way to school, and nothing is done about it, he said. No one has any accountability for any damn thing they do in this city. Akbar, a heroin addict in recovery, said the city needs to add treatment beds far more quickly and refuse to tolerate public drug use, particularly around kids. If a person wants to use drugs, that's their choice. But you can't do it wherever you want to do it, he said. City leaders who acted collectively and decisively to save lives during the COVID-19 pandemic have taken a far less urgent and more argumentative approach to the opioid crisis. By now, the wake-up calls are more like sirens blaring as they hold more hearings and craft more long-ranging plans while the disastrous results are on full display. 
Consider that through October, 501 people had died in the city of drug overdoses this year, the majority from fentanyl, many perishing alone in rundown residential hotels. That brought the death toll since January 2020 to 1,837, far more than from COVID-19. Homicides and car crashes combined. If you laid those bodies end to end, they'd stretch about two miles, roughly the distance from the Tenderloin to the marina. Consider that Tenderloin police alone seized 60.4 kilos of fentanyl this year through November 27th, more than double the amount gathered in all of 2021. This year's haul is enough to kill everyone in Northern California. Or how about this bright red light? San Francisco's emergency room doctors can barely keep up with the patients flooding their hospitals high on meth or fentanyl. They revive them with care and compassion, but often send them back to the streets with no real plan. Dr. Scott Chang, uh, a CPMC emergency doctor who did not treat Senna Makovic, said he recently admitted a patient who'd been found squatting in an abandoned building, smoking fentanyl and covered in urine and feces. The man was deemed gravely disabled and placed in a 72-hour psychiatric hold. But Before long, he asserted he was fine and was discharged back to the street. Chang said the man had a very high risk of dying, but his case wasn't unusual. The scenario plays out weekly at CPMC, and often the patients quickly return after overdosing again. From a moral standpoint, it's pretty disheartening, Chang said. Chang said he'd like to see the city offer more long-term treatment options, and he favors mandated treatment for those who are gravely disabled, as allowed under state law. He doesn't control whether patients stay on holds, though the hospital psychiatrists do. Excuse me. Mayor London Breed declared a state of emergency in the Tenderloin a year ago, but the results were mixed. She failed to get the former district attorney, the public defender, or judges on board, and didn't even seem to have locked in a commitment from her own police officers. Many supervisors fought the plan without offering better ideas. The city hired street ambassadors from nonprofit Urban Alchemy, who helped calm the neighborhood during the day, but nighttime remained chaotic and dangerous. A nearby linkage center provided valuable basics such as food, laundry, and showers, and saved perhaps hundreds of lives by allowing people to do drugs in an outdoor area where workers could intervene with Narcan if needed. But it didn't live up to Breed's promise of connecting people to long-term mental health and substance abuse treatment. And it's closing this weekend with nothing to immediately replace it. That's from the San Francisco Chronicle. I will link that article in the, in the chat. San Francisco is not some sort of liberal anomaly. We see these conditions in most major metropolitan areas and also in the suburbs as well. I've said this repeatedly, the tough on crime rhetoric isn't going to be a sweeping bill like 1994, but more of a plan of poverty containment. It won't be prisons, but red line hell zones. And these magnified cases of toddlers ODing will be the catalyst that will lead the charge. What say y'all? And let, let's get our guest opinion on this too. Please welcome probably the biggest glutton for punishment that we know on the left, because this man reads every horrible right-wing book about why socialism is a failed scene. Please welcome Matt McManus. Look, guys. So you guys heard a big chunk of the article. 
Pascal, you have your, you know, opinions on Eric Adams. What do you think? I think that these kind of situations are the perfect storm to give police police uh, increase legislated by people like Eric Adams license and that increasing the role of the state and basically punishing the poor, which I think is the ultimate one of the ultimate purposes of the police state is going to get worse. You know, COVID left the reality in this country that no one is addressed. No one is dealing with it. And I think that my biggest problem is that the left has failed to really put pressure pressure on the state and capital to address how much of a gap in quality of life people have faced because of that that major major public health catastrophe. And I don't see a lot of people really focusing about how we recover from that because we're not. And everyone is scoring points. The right is trying to score points. And I see even the neoliberals with the anti-crime rhetoric trying to score points. But there's no real good left response as to how both the state and capital failed at that moment of public health crisis. I agree with that. Stefan, do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, I mean, you obviously, you, you started the article and I, I briefly interrupted you, you know, talking about them waking up. And it's like, well, they can't wake up because there's nothing they can do. There's nothing that's in their remit which would actually solve these problems, you know. Mm. The, well, beyond the fact that it's, you know, much more than an LA or a California problem, this is just a general problem of kind of the state of capital in the United mm-hmm. States and, and where the, what the political economy is. Like, what's their solution? Like moving homeless people around, even kind of liberal solutions like amelioration and, and treatment and so on aren't gonna actually solve the problem, are they? The only thing that could actually change it is like real massive change in how kind of the US political economy is structured. Cause you're not gonna stop fentanyl getting into the country. These are like demons, which when once unleashed are just permanently there, right? And the only way out of it is to have like a functioning society, which obviously increasingly like in places like LA, you, you're seeing like a proper like sci-fi dystopia. Mm-hmm. No, LA looks like, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead, Matt. No, I was going to say, I completely agree with what Stefan said there. And it reminds me a bit of what uh, David Harvey used to say, which is that capitalism can never solve its fundamental contradictions, but it can move them around uh, and usually move them around <laughs> to target the most richly vulnerable populations, almost racistly uh targeted populations in the united states right but i was just thinking a little bit about what you're talking about with this being um the son of a major tech mogul uh, and obviously what happened is awful right i mean baby should never have to go through that and i'm glad they survived right uh but it really re- mm-hmm. reflects the kind of personal attitude that elites all across the political spectrum take in this fucking country right which is that if, if there's a problem whether you're democrat or republican if you're rich enough the solution is more police, more regulation, and never actually solving any of the kind of struck problems that are very transparent right now. Uh, I mean, what happened here reminded me a lot of what happened in, in um, San Francisco, uh, the pandemic, uh, where there was this infamous video that went around. You guys probably saw it, uh, where there was a tent city that was set up near uh, this multi-million dollar apartment complex where upper middle class people said uh, lived. And people in the tent city were using drugs and they were smoking it and they were drinking and there were fights that broke out and they interviewed this one woman who was like, oh, you know, this used to be such a nice neighborhood. They need to clear it out. Something needs to happen. I wonder what's going on. Not once uh, did she sit there and say, poverty in this city. Uh, and maybe has made that a little worse and we should do something about that, right? Uh, and I think that looking at the responses to these kinds of things sometimes the left doesn't respond to it in the right way uh because there can be this very resentment driven response which is well you know now your son is sick and 
shows you, you know, what life is like for the rest of us. And you saw things like that also with the 10 city where I saw a couple of people say like, well, this is the reality the left of the rest of us live in. Right. Uh, I don't yes. think that's the right way to respond to it. I think the right way to respond to is to sit there and say, across the fam, we have real problems in our society. Little fixes aren't going to resolve anything. And what we need is a fundamental thinking, a very basic uh, economic and political structures, both here and around the world. Absolutely. Yeah, so, so, yeah, there's there's it's weird. All of a sudden, Matt, we're having uh, a connection issue with you. Oh shit! Can you hear me now? We can hear you. It was just—it was getting real, like choppy as soon as you were talking. Yeah, you were clipping really hard. Um, keep stay cool. Shit. Is on the job. Dude, always on the job. <laughs> always on the job. No, we can hear. You. Yeah, it's just—it's just—it's just kind of. Can, can you hear me now? Yeah, we can hear you now. Do you hear the choppiness anymore, Stefan? Uh, he sounds okay. I mean, it's obviously still low quality. Um, oh, okay. Where did I? Where did I oh, cut yeah, out yeah. on? You, no, 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 we, no, we, 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 heard, we heard it. We just wanted to say at the end that. Oh, okay, good. Well, thank God. Fucking, you know, the deep space. <laughs> well. No, that was a good, that was a very good take. <laughs> but no, I I mean, yeah. you know, kind of, I just want to end by saying, you know, I, I think moving people around is going to be the solution that most people are going to want or like because it's going to sound the most humane, but what always happens is those projects get extremely underfunded and always outsourced to nonprofits that will always, you know, we live in capitalism. So they're going to try to find the cheapest and most efficient way to house a certain population. And I do, even when I was working in it, I was seeing a lot of these solution hotels in areas that were severely in decline and there was no help coming. Uh, there's no stadium coming. There's no big shopping area coming. There's no build out of trendy uh, loft housing coming. It's just this is where you people that don't own the property stay. And there's some hotels around you or large apartment complexes that we can warehouse this problem of blight um, that we don't want to see anymore. And that is what I think the future is going to be um, as, as this problem has gone out beyond the major metropolitan areas and into more suburban areas uh, of the country. Um, mm. Oh yeah, not just here either. I should say that something very similar happened uh, in Toronto when I was living there. So uh, when COVID hit, uh, the homeless population of the city was particularly badly impacted by it for by a variety of different reasons. And one of the solutions the premier put forward was we'll throw them all in these hotels and we'll throw them all in these shelters uh, and we won't provide them any kind of medical assistance um, or we won't try to actually make sure that they quarantine so that they're less likely to actually contract the disease. We'll just throw them all in there to try to get them out of the way. Uh, and as more and more people ended up losing their homes, losing their jobs because of the pandemic, what you started to see is these 10 cities uh, crop up all over the city. It's really quite something actually, because my buddies and I go walk around the city late at night because we're all working until like 10, 11 o'clock, right? And you just see like 30, 40, like tents and parks and all that stuff. And the premier got rid of them and forced those people uh, into the hotels also, exacerbated the crisis and didn't give a shit because uh, it was just impacting people you know, who didn't have a job, weren't paying taxes, right? So yep. sadly, it's so just an American problem. Uh, it's a global problem. Uh, and even in a country that prides itself on 
being the nice guys like Canada, uh, you really see the, the awful impacts of capitalism. Mm. Well, let's move on to something more cheery, like the reactionary Nietzsche. <laughs> if you guys have something Everybody's to say about what we just discussed, what we just discussed please uh, leave a comment and let us know your opinion on what you think the future of this is going to be. It's not looking bright, uh, in my opinion, and stories like this just uh, give a lot of validity to programs like that are being rolled out right now by people like Eric. So from Matt McManus's latest, well, you wrote this book with a bunch of people. Uh, if Nietzsche is right, there is no taking liberalism with a dash of Christian traditionalism and calling it ordered liberty without re recognizing that the roots of progressive radicalism remain not just uncut, but flourishing in their native soil. Consequently, a wide swath of the conservative and reactionary tradition comes to appear not just half-hearted, but self-defeating on its own terms. If the objective is indeed to confront the egalitarian movements that sprung to life with the revolution and remain the specter haunting the world ever since. The political right remains uncreatively limited by the historical horizons which gave birth to progressivism and consequently is only able to generate derivative or partial critiques of the left, which cede so much to the Christian legacy, they will never be lastingly effective. These points should not distract us from the fundamental realization that Nietzsche was very much a man of the right and that the efforts of of postmodern thinkers amongst others to turn him into a rather conventional French critic of ancient regime and bourgeoisie moralism is antithetical to the aristocratic thrust of his work. The flip side to this is that the left has an opportunity on its hands to reconsider its long-standing hostility towards all forms of religiosity and question whether there might indeed be a genealogical affinity between its ambitions and those of Christianity and other monotheistic faiths. Beyond intellectual, there are good strategic reasons such an inter... Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Because I, I heard you talking. I can't see you. Uh, an inter... I can't even say this word right now. <laughs> Jason's tripped over. I tripped over. <laughs> For too long, some form of the religious right has monopolized the grammars and rhetorics of religiosity for its own purposes. Something progressives by no means need to grant them in what some are calling a post-secular age. Because if Nietzsche is right, it turns out it is not the religious right, but the radical left who are the true heirs of the Christian aspiration for a world of equal brothers and sisters. Even if it even if that is now often and rightly expressed in secularized terms, pun intended, this would be quite the revelation. Matt, what prompted you to want to write about Nietzsche? Well, there are a few different things. Uh, one is I've been reading the guy since I was 18 years old. Uh, you know, I was raised Roman Catholic, lost my faith, you know, very cliche kind of story. Yeah, you, yeah, uh, you, start, you start your uh, piece with that, that you grew up reading Nietzsche and it was kind of the greatest kind of F you to, it seemed like your super Roman Catholic upbringing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, and, 
it was really revelatory, right? It made me rethink a lot of my basic conceptions. I've always been really interested in the guy. Uh, but like a lot of other people who read Nietzsche around when they're 18 years old, but kind of lean left-ish, right? You know, I would skim over the things where he talks about slaves and slave morality and aristocratic radicalism and the lie of the quality of souls and how wars were going to be fought in his name and you know, go without a women, make sure you bring a whip. And I was just like, whatever, whatever, whatever. Uh, and it was actually seeing Nietzsche's impact uh, on a lot of contemporary right-wing thinkers, people like Richard Spencer, for example, uh, and reading Ronald Beener's book, uh, Dangerous Minds, uh, Nietzsche Heidegger and the alt-right, that convinced me that I really need to take a second look at this. So I went back and I reread a lot of Nietzsche's work more carefully than I had in years. Uh, and what I realized was he is most certainly uh, a right-wing thinker, even a radically right-wing thinker. Uh, and one of the reasons why it's hard to detect that is precisely because as a genius, and there's no denying Nietzsche was a genius philosophically, right? Uh, is he really rethinks a lot of the ways the right tries to go about arguing for its sort of more inegalitarian positions. Uh, and so I was inspired to kind of write this because I was just interested in it, uh, but also because I think it's important for the, the left to start to A, wean itself off of the kind of post-structuralist particularism uh, that Nietzsche advances that's been really popular among left-wing academics for a long time. Uh, but secondly, and probably more importantly, because one of the things that Nietzsche stresses consistently is that there's a religious basis uh, to a lot of left-wing movements that's often not acknowledged, certainly in the United States, where the religious right kind of dominates discourse. Uh, and I saw this as an opportunity to kind of rethink how the left can understand religion and religious movements. Uh, and I wanted to ask myself whether or not there might be a chance, because I'm part of a group called the Institute for Christian Socialism, right, uh, to rejuvenate uh, a kind of more progressive religious approach uh, in this country and elsewhere. So that's what inspired the book. I did not know you were part of that group. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. I mean, uh, it's been a little inactive for a while because people are refurbishing the website, but I really believe in what they're doing. Do you believe in God? Uh, that's a complicated question. And uh, the answer is, I don't know. <laughs> so it's not a very okay. good answer. Uh, I believe in, at most, a kind of Spinozist God with certain Christian connotations. And the way I express my spirituality is through the grammar and symbolism of Christianity, because that's what I was brought up with. Um, mm -hmm. So kind of consistent with what Paul Tillich would talk about, for example. Take that long hair. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure what's been taken. That was just a nice explanation of his position, one of which I obviously massively disagree with. But oh, that's fair. And I mean, hey, listen, uh, I'd be the first one to sit there and say that I'm all for the Marxist critique of idolatrous forms of religiosity of the sort that you see emerging on the political right all the time. If anything, because the rise of the religious right is such an important aspect of things like Trumpism, it's more important to engage that critique, uh, arguably, than it has been in many, many years. Right? I just don't think uh, Quan. Nietzsche's own observations that we need to cede the terrain of religion and Christianity or monotheism to conservatives. Uh, I think that'd be a strategic mistake and also a theoretical one. Agreed. Stefan, I know you have some questions here about Nietzsche, so. No, no. I don't. Really? I don't have the questions. No. No one ever gave no. them to me. Okay. Well, I actually had some questions I wanted to ask. Thank Pascal. Thank you. For, for for much much of the, the 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 public, Nietzsche has kind of been deemed as the philosopher of the Third Reich, the kind yep. of the 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 dark philosopher of you know rationalizing God is dead. That the the, the really these reductive notions of uh, validating hierarchy, anti egalitarian, anti liberalism, uh, 
challenging modernity and things of that nature. And one of the things that I find fascinating is mm -hmm. that Nietzsche works very well in this moment in which the crisis of masculinity is merging with this challenge to modernity and asking young men in America to reach back to the periods in which the hierarchies of brotherhood and dedication and chivalry and things like uh, 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 discipline required men to be men. I was, I was uh, reading a tweet that Cuba had sent me yesterday that was Mo that was uh, motivated by a, short, a YouTube short that he had watched. And in the YouTube short, they start with a montage. And in the montage, it said, modernity, should you accept it or reject it? And then he says, reject it. And then he says, accept brotherhood, discipline, manhood, dedication. These are the things you should. And it was, a, it was like a commercial to tell young men, reject modernity and everything into it. And when I was thinking about it, I was thinking about the show, I was like, it was very Nietzsche-esque. It was just, it, oh, it yeah. really exudes the kind of messaging. So when we're talking about Nietzsche and being kind of like the philosopher of the reactionary right, is there anything about Nietzsche that actually is worth redeeming, do you think, for the left? Or is really he just a pure philosopher of reaction. Oh, I think there's a lot that's worth redeeming, right? This is where I come out of uh, break with people like um, Ronnie or Malcolm Bull a little bit, right? Uh, I mean, Nietzsche was a genius, right? There's no doubt about it. Uh, he's somebody I profoundly disagree with and actually think was an evil man. Uh, but even really bad people sometimes have very interesting and useful things to say. Uh, the point of this book wasn't to say that the left shouldn't read Nietzsche or even use Nietzsche. It's just that we should be self-conscious about what it is that we're doing, right? Uh, we're not dealing with somebody who's naturally aligned with us, very much the contrary, right? Uh, but just to kind of your point about his emphasis on a rejection of modernity, uh, in order to understand why that happened, this happened and why people who reject modernity are attracted to him, I think it's uh, useful to kind of understand a bit about what his account of modernity is, right? A conventional reactionary uh, account of modernity usually runs something like this. Uh, once upon a time, we had this wonderful Aristotelian Christian universe uh, defined by hierarchical complementarity. Everyone knew their place. Uh, this was justified by scholastic theology uh, or various forms of absolutism. And then that all broke down under the pressure of liberalism and other radical and secular movements. And so what we need to do is go back uh, to this kind of theic, orderly hierarchical universe that existed before the French and American revolutions, right? Uh, what makes Nietzsche really distinctive uh, and really brave, if you want to put it that way, in his critique is to say, you guys are a bunch of losers, basically, to his other fellow conservatives, right? You're not brave at all. Uh, because what you think is that Christianity plays a role in supporting these hierarchical notions. Whereas actually, if you go back to the very earliest features of Christianity, what we're talking about is a poor Jewish rebel uh, who had terrible things to say about imperialism, who said that the meek will inherit the earth and that it was the humble and poor who would ultimately be God's final children, right? Uh, and all that the revolutionaries within liberalism, socialism, and democracy are doing is taking this Christian message far more seriously uh, than Christian conservatives do, uh, where they want to water it down, dilute it, compromise it in all kinds of less different ways, uh, and transform Christianity into an ideology that retrenches hierarchy. 
Uh, and Nietzsche's solution, therefore, is that we need to completely reject the entire Judeo-Christian heritage to go back, to use Pascal's rhetoric, to an earlier kind of ethos that draws very heavily upon aspects of modernity. Let's be clear about that, particularly its emphasis on internality. But a, a pre-kind of modern ethos that's more rugged, aristocratic, definitely masculine and butch, right? Uh, and there are two different ways that the more creative right-wing thinkers have appropriated this. One is by incorporating this kind of masculist aristocratism uh, with various defenses of capitalism. That was very much Ayn Rand's kind of take on Nietzsche. But the other is definitely uh, to develop fascist kind of philosophies. Uh, now, Nietzsche emphatically rejected things like anti-Semitism, uh, nationalism. He was a racist, let's be clear about that, right? Uh, and so he wouldn't very much, have, he wouldn't have liked um, fascism and Nazism if he saw them. But that does not mean that he was some kind of cuddly, forgiving figure uh, who would have had anything good to say about Bernie Sanders, democratic socialism, or a lot of the bohemian movements that claim him as an antecedent. Right. What, so, what's, so what's really in line with a lot of the alt-right like kind of ide ideology towards Marxism and socialism is that they think it breeds weakness, that it doesn't, it doesn't allow for the, the, uh, the, the uh, competitive spirit of capitalism that allows one to conquer with bloodlust, seeking profit, and that this take care of those who are sick, weak, the infirmed is something that comes from its origins that are rooted in Christian, Christian biblical or Judeo-Christian texts and faith, whether they be Quranic or otherwise. So what, what becomes fascinating to me is that it, are we at a moment where we're seeing a revival of Nietzschean thought? Right now, is is the is the alt right embracing him? Embracing him. What's interesting is that I don't see people like Jordan Peterson really talk much about Nietzsche. And maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, because obviously Peterson embraces Christianity, so it will be kind of you know uh, uh, maybe contradictory for him to, to to do that. I see Peterson is more kind of like a Jungian kind of guy. But where does the alt right stand on on Nietzsche today? I know in the past. You know, going back to the more fascistic uh, iterations, they were more embracing of him. But is he kind of uh, viewed as the philosopher of the moment for that faction of the political spectrum? I would actually say Heidegger uh, is probably a more prevalent intellectual influence right now, uh, or sadly, somebody like Alexander Dugan, uh, who I wrote about uh, beforehand. <laughs> but it's important to note that Nietzsche was an important antecedent to both of these, uh, and he very much is a serious intellectual presence on the right. Uh, people are a bit uncomfortable with him because of his militant atheism, and a lot of them want to advance various kinds of Christofascism, right, uh, that ignores the lessons that he thinks that he's teaching them. Uh, but let's be very clear, right? Uh, somebody like Jordan Peterson in uh, 12 Rules More uh, embraces Nietzsche's outlook uh, very fundamentally when he's criticizing the left, saying that Nietzsche uh, anticipated this idea that modernity was going to bring with it this crisis of nihilism that's associated very heavily uh, with the spread of egalitarianism and the devaluation of all values. Uh, and what we need, consequently, is a return to a kind of older, more hierarchical, more masculine uh, way of looking at the world. Uh, where Nietzsche would probably criticize Peterson is by saying that Peterson is kind of a bitch, right? Uh, and he wants to save elements of the Christian heritage because he's not willing to go all the way and realize that it's actually the trans activists who are the most legitimate um, inheritors of the Christian tradition, right? Because they're saying the meek will inherit the earth, right? Um, but you can also see impacts on people like Richard Spencer, right? Who wrote extensively about Nietzsche, talked about how the alt-right was deeply inspired by him, and he himself was deeply inspired by him. Uh, you can also look at people like even Dinesh D'Souza, my favorite whipping boy, right? Uh, in his book, uh, 
criticizing socialism. Uh, he has this very interesting passage where he condemns Nordic socialism. And he actually calls it socialism, which a lot of uh, people on the right don't want to do. Uh, and he says, yeah, even if it works, why would you want to live in a society like Norway, Sweden, or Denmark filled with last men? That's the term he uses. Like, uh, who have no great projects they want to will, who are content with living these hollow, inegalitarian, passive lives. Uh, no real man like Donald Trump would want in a community like that, right? So his influence is very, very extensive, right? Uh, particularly this critique of resentment, which we can get in, that they, they always use to hammer the left. Uh, what I think is, again, most of the right-wing thinkers aren't brave enough to really go all the way and just say that we want to reject Christianity and Judeo-Christian heritage to go back to this kind of aristocratic mindset. Uh, so they try to water it down a bit, but the influence is still very much there. Well, you know, it's it's really fascinating because it's like one of the one of the problems that I have about where we view this at the left is that this demonstrates to me is that the right and even in its iteration of the alt-right is more serious about its philosophical project than the left is because they're drawing from clear traditions that have precedence in addressing problems of modernity, criticizing socialism, uh, uh, challenging egalitarianism, reifying a hierarchy and things of that nature. But yet, on the you know on the left, we're sitting around, sitting around arguing about Jim Dore videos. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of ridiculous, you know, in terms of the lack of seriousness that you find to the left really drawing on a kind of really intellectually strident tradition. I know there are people who try, we have we have Jacobin sublation, so on and so forth, but I don't think those things are done in a way that effectively neutralize the right-wing assault on the egalitarian socialist project. Do you think that's a consequence of the fact that one of the projects of the socialist left has to be rooted in including the working class. And as a consequence of that, it denies us the ability to intellectually focus on arguments that might be too sophisticated for that working class component. And as a result, we're not actually taking the best and brightest of our minds to come up with these kind of academically hoi-polloi arguments, if you will, to challenge the right. In other words, does the proletarian nature of the left stop it from being able to come up with the intellectual arguments needed to defeat these type of philosophical positions? That's a great question. And, you know, I don't have a complete answer to that because I've been mulling it over a lot myself and I'm not really sure, right? Uh, just provisionally, I'd say that what you've seen over the last couple of decades has been a split uh, on the left where there's a huge working class constituency uh, that is committed to universalistic projects that will structurally transform our material conditions, right? Uh, a lot of people support things like universal healthcare. A lot of people in the working class want to see the prison industrial system um, devolve. A lot of people are committed to a much more specific kind of international program that liberal elites deny. You know, you run it down, uh, their working class had a lot of issues. Uh, intellectuals and left intellectuals in particular, though, uh, have been deeply inspired uh, by some of the worst aspects, I think, of Nietzschean thinking, uh, this pessimism about universalism, uh, this kind of aristocratic, elitist uh, kind of quality. Uh, and so what you've seen a lot of leftist intellectuals do by being attracted to things like postmodernism is abandon uh, universalistic, concrete narratives 
uh, that articulate exactly the kind of demand we want to make. Uh, and we limit ourselves instead to things like deconstructing and trapping. Uh, and breaking down uh, traditions that we see as being oppressive. Now, don't get me wrong. I think that there's a lot of good that comes from this. Like, I love me some Foucault. I love me some Deleuze, right? I'm not sitting there saying there's anything wrong with that. Uh, but I think that the exclusive focus on that without putting forth a sustained, inspirational, egalitarian program uh, that is broad enough to include large segments uh, of the working class, people of color, queer individuals, uh, and also intellectually rich enough to attract um, an intellectual elite, that's all going to need to be there. Uh, we've failed on that so far. Uh, and I'm doing my best to try to rectify that. I know a lot of other people like yourself and Ben are trying to do something on that and also. But I think we do have a long way to go. So Matt, with your kind of critique of Nietzsche's critique of the left um, and distantly Christianity and so on, is, is what you're saying that are you rejecting the idea that the left engages in inversion of values in veneration of the weak um, and this sort of and, and resentment? Or are you saying this stuff is happening, but we shouldn't take seriously the idea that this is kind of like a fundamental problem and maybe we should kind of embrace the weak and so on? I think that we should embrace the weak, uh, and I think we should embrace equality, right? Uh, I'm very committed to those kinds of values. What Nietzsche does, though, that's very interesting, uh, is he enables the left to be historically self-conscious uh, about just how novel its claims are, right? Uh, because one of the things that he points out is that prior to Christianity and monotheism more generally, uh, the operative assumption in most ideologies was that people were fundamentally unequal, right? Uh, from the beginning, right? Uh, and they grew more unequal over time. Uh, it's with the rise of these monotheistic faiths that you had this idea that all people are equal before God. Everyone uh, is beloved by God. Uh, and with Jesus, especially this idea that uh, the poor are going to inherit the earth, ultimately. Uh, they're the ones who are most beloved of him. Uh, and what Nietzsche points out is that this egalitarian idea is so powerful uh, and so inspirational to many that it's become almost de facto moral common sense uh, for a lot of people living uh, in Christian countries. Uh, I mean, even look at the Declaration of Independence, this idea that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Right now, Thomas Jefferson may have been a deist, uh, but you know Nietzsche would say he's still very much drawing on the legacy of this kind of Christian heritage. Uh, and what he insists upon very stridently is this need to transvaluate all values by insisting that, in fact, people are not equal, right? We need to go back to this idea that, um, as he puts it, there's a lie of equality of souls that has been promulgated for 2,000 years uh, and that people be begin e unequal, they stay unequal, and they become more unequal over time. Uh, and a huge amount of his work is taken up with analyzing how it is that this lie of equality of souls, as he understands it, has been allowed to seep into our culture and transformed it into more decadent uh, kind of forms. Uh, and this is also where I'm very critical of some of the emphasis on theoretical difference uh, that you find in people like Deleuze that they draw from Nietzsche, right? Uh, because, I mean, there are a lot of good reasons for the left to be sensitive to difference and to want to be inclusive, for example. Uh, but what we've never understood is that these Nietzschean tools that we've appropriated to argue for difference were put to very different purposes uh, by the political right. And this isn't just Nietzsche, this is Burke also, right? Because uh, difference can mean inclusion, tolerance, uh, a respect for individuality, right? Uh, in a progressive sense, but an emphasis on difference could also mean differences of rank, status, hierarchy, racial differences, right? Uh, all the kind of things that Nietzsche wants to draw people's attention to again, right? Uh, so even on this point, uh, what you see is him 
radically uh, reappropriating and reinterpreting uh, what has traditionally been a reactionary term uh, and putting it to even more strident use. Uh, and it's quite remarkable that you see progressive thinkers use this reference to dif difference uh, in a way that's entirely contrary to the way that these aristocratic radicals originally intended to be used. But if, if we should embrace the weak, who are the weak here? Because the working class isn't weak, right? The working class is the big strong class. The working class is, is has all the power, well, should have all the power. It does have all the production, you know? So who, who, who are the weak here? Who are the weak in our society right now? Yeah. I think there are a lot of different groups that I point to. Uh, I mean, I think you think about what, racialized communities. But why does the working class powerful? How are they powerful? They How produce are they, everything. So what? Them, so what? So, so what? Slaves. Yeah, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, I don't think that the working no, class I, is I'm powerful. No, I'm just being absolutely straight line orthodox Marxist and you're all okay, liberal. Okay, no, that's just the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Because yeah, I'm speaking in reality. You're speaking in idealized. No, I'm not fantasy. speaking about, no. The working class has wow. controls all the production in our society, okay. but because they aren't class conscious, they don't use that for their own sake. They use that for the sake of the ruling class. But the working class have the power in our society. They just choose not to use it because do you think the they wake up in the morning and well, go, I Steph choose to use the power? Well, if, if they don't, then we're yeah. fucked, mate. <laughs> no, isn't well, the issue here that the, it's not a matter of choice for the working class? It's that their labor is being extracted by the lords of capital and the bourgeoisie effectively. Yeah, of course, none, none, of this is, none of this is voluntary. What I'm saying is that when you say they choose or they have power is that the working class is dependent on the the, the lords of capital for compensation in it, that does not deny them full compensation for their labor. And as a result, they are robbed of value of their labor and they're being denied that as a result, they are being pauperized by their labor and having it extracted by the bourgeoisie. Yeah, so, I would right, frame it in a different way. I think that the working it. class is the most productive class in the economy, and the entire economy is dependent upon them. Uh, but what's unjust about that is precisely that we, our society rests upon their efforts, but they have so little power and so little opportunity because they're dominated by capital and capitalist politicians. Right. I mean, I, I think that also I would expand that not to just to the working class. I think that the sick, the infirmed, Mm -hmm. the, the the traditionally discriminated against minorities. I think that people. I mean, I don't think that we should be so adverse to the realities of the fact that even within a classical Marxian understanding, identity is used within capital to extract value for capital and oppress. You know. I think there's a difference between being, you being into identity politics and recognizing the way in which, for example, race or gender, which, by the way, there are Marxian explanations for how all of those things are used within a capitalist society to extract labor for capital and oppress those various groups. We don't necessarily have to be relegated to the way in which bourgeois liberal identity politics uses those differentiations, but I also don't want to fall into this kind of belief that we deny the fact that there is a way in which capitalism utilizes the identities of various groups to extract from them to maintain hierarchies of labor and capital. 
Yeah, and I would say that one of the most important categories in Marxist thought is this idea of a real abstraction, right? Uh, which is necessary to reify systems of power in the state uh, and in carceral authorities in particular, right? Uh, and the argument isn't that the working class is stupid and doesn't recognize that there's no necessity for these things to exist uh, and it could actually replace them. Uh, it's that it's very difficult to break out of those mindsets precisely because people are taught that this is the only way things can be uh, because people are exploited day in and day out so they don't have time to actually mobilize to confront them. Uh, and I do agree with Stefan when he says that ultimately we have the power in our hands to remake the world, right? Uh, but that's a very different kind of power than the forces of domination that are operative in everyday life and that are shielded by these real abstractions and the various kinds of reifications and ideologies that confront us, right? Uh, and so it's our task to try to awaken a sense of class consciousness or subaltern consciousness. Uh, and it's a hard one, right? Uh, well, I'm not sure what the magic formula for that is, because if I knew, then I would have done it and we'd be living in a very different world at this point, right? I mean, I'm a fan of understanding the role of ideological superstructure in, in, in formulating the way in which people who are the proletariat can address the lords of capital and the bourgeoisie. What I'm saying is that the ideological superstructure of the society we live in are dictated by the ruling class in terms of the consciousness level of which they inculcate into the masses of people. And then most people basically are just wanting to go to their nine to five job, whether they like it or not, watch football on Monday or Sunday or whatever day it is, and pay their bills if they can, sleep and hopefully have some life insurance to pass on to their kids. So challenging the state and capital and having a revolution is far from the, the way that they think because the ideological superstructure of American society and Western society does not make that an option. The role of the radical, the role of the leftist, for my humble opinion, is to give the political education to those masses so they have the capacity to use the potential power that Stefan is talking about to change the conditions of their reality. In theoretically, yes, the working class can stop production and shut down the capacity of capital. What I'm saying is that is that a real is that real is that actual reality real possibility without the capacity of changing their consciousness? I don't think so. Yeah, and I think Corey Robin had a very, very good observation about this in his book, The Reactionary Mind, uh, where he said that oftentimes it's very tempting for the left to think that we should be in charge because we are supporting most people uh, and we're enticing them to you know, stand up against the elites to try to create a more just world. And this leads to a lot of confusion when that doesn't happen. Uh, but what he points out is that actually conservatives have a lot of motivation uh, to try to prevent uh, various forms of egalitarian justice from being implemented. Uh, and they appeal to a universal sense of human loss uh, in order to back up their coalition because everyone can understand something like, I was once in a position of power or I once had certain kind of privileges and those were taken away and I want them back. The left has a very difficult thing to do, which is to actually convince people that a world that they have never seen before is actually possible and achievable and that they should be willing to put the scraps that they're given on the line uh, in order to obtain that. Right uh, now, I think that we should do that. Uh, we actually have to do that, I would say. Uh, but it's not easy. Right. And I think that a lot of this has to do with, as Pascal said, the ideological superstructures that are present in capital. Uh, but we should never let ourselves off the hook and assume that even if people are alert to the way that they're being manipulated, as the way I think, as I think a lot of people are right now, uh, it's going to be a one, two, three matter to convince them to do something to change it. Yeah, we should definitely reject the idea that everyone's like a secret communist about to be born, right? Yeah. Like, it's not an obvious position. No, like, I, I think that's I, kind I, of... I think that the actual 
the tendency that capital pushes people to is the tendency of reaction. I think I think that sad to say it, but I think that many people in America who are the suffering kind of like working class proles are more likely to agree with Nietzsche than Marx. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, and I mean, this is one of the things that I've noticed routinely uh, when it comes to people, usually from middle class backgrounds, who find him extremely appealing. Right. Uh, what Nietzsche offers is this very pathological sense of yourself as a superior person whose superiority has been denied right, by the culture around you. Uh, and I think that is a perverse way of looking at things, right? Uh, and very, very dangerous. But you can absolutely see why it would be appealing to a lot of people, uh, because it combines this sense of being a victim on the one hand, uh, because something that belongs to you, the status is being denied, while also giving you a sense of superiority. Uh, and this appeal of being both a victim and a superior at once is something that the left has never been able to operationalize as effective. And I, and I think it's, again, a horrible pathology. Uh, but it's definitely one that, just go look at the alt-right, right? A lot of people find yeah. Yeah, it's extremely like enticing. A power, powerful meme, but not one that we could ever, like, even if we could exploit that, we wouldn't want to, right? Yeah, that exactly. In terrible places. I think, think about the, the fascists. Sorry, go ahead, Pascal. I think one of the things that the left is, and I say this for, for, for all of us, is that one of the things that we're unable to do effectively is explain to these disaffected individuals who are floating to the right, like these young men who are interested in the right, who's how to, is that it's not the left that's causing your disaffection. It's the failure of capital and its in, internal contradictions, particularly in this current form of neoliberalism over the last 50 plus years that have brought you to this position that you feeling alienation, that you're feeling that you don't have a utility, that you're feeling that you don't have any kind of purpose. You don't have any kind of purpose because the, the nature of the political economy around you has made your labor, your work, your value, your intellectual and your creative contributions valueless. Absolutely. And I put it in an even somewhat different way, right? Uh, one of the consequences of the kind of Nietzschean forms of capitalism that we've seen emerge over neoliberalism uh, is this belief that capitalism uh, reflects a kind of sorting mechanism uh, to rank people into superior and inferior. Uh, and what this means, of course, is that people who wind up at the top feel that they are better, uh, that they have no obligation to people at the bottom, right? Uh, and the vast majority of us are made to feel that if we couldn't cut it in this neoliberal system, uh, then that is because we are just inferior. Uh, and everything uh, that we have, we owe to those who are better than us. Uh, and if we're not able to have any more, then it's our own damn fault. Uh, and I can't imagine anything that is more alienating than that, right? Uh, and what we need to do on the left is to translate those feelings of alienation into attack on this competitive ethos of superiority, right? Uh, and not lead people down the path, or uh, sorry, and deny, or sorry, what's the way to put it? break down this temptation to turn to the path that what we need is to replace neoliberalism with an even more brutally competitive system, uh, mm -hmm. which will actually reflect a dominant hierarchy uh, that's really reflective of the innate virtues or value of people. Uh, and that's what a lot of people on the alt-right are attracted to, where they'll say, you know, we'll break down this neoliberal system, but we're going to replace it with an even more hierarchical one uh, that really reflects the intrinsic differences between people and their worth, right? One based on race or IQ or national difference or whatever it happens to be, right? Uh, it's a horrifying yeah, this, idea. This is like the Landian critique of the left, right? That the left is yeah. basically like erected a, a cathedral, which basically slows every da everything down, protects the weak, and prevents what is needed to happen. And then, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's Curtis Yarvin uh, in a nutshell, right? Uh, Curtis Yarvin is kind of 
a bastard fourth-rate Nietzschean in many respects, uh, <laughs> where you know he has adopted this Peter Thiel mentality, which is that uh, our corporate overlords are a kind of ubermensch, and that we'd be better off submitting to them. Uh, and one of the biggest problems is the culture is so left aligned, which is a baffling thing to say, uh, that we just don't realize that uh, we would all be better off if the Peter Thiels of the world uh, were in charge and well, forcing us all into the ocean, you know, to experiment with lies in the sea, right? Uh, I mean, it's bafflingly dumb uh, kind of ideas, but you can see why it's attractive to a lot of people. Again, this notion that, you know, I'm a superior and I'm just being denied that by the general culture. Very enticing. Interesting. Interesting. Matt, did you want to talk about um, kind of your notions around Christian socialism and why you think that kind of is something with potential? Because obviously, as, as you said before, this isn't like deriving from you from like a fierce, fierce faith, right? Um, so, and I'm not saying it's then cynical because you don't believe in exactly the right kind of God, but what is kind of the motivation for you in, th in thinking that there's like a lot of good to be extracted for the left from Christianity? Well, I think that one of the things that Nietzsche stresses in his work is absolutely right, that if you look deep enough into left-wing movements, including socialism, uh, you can see that many of them have a religious basis. Uh, and I think that's true. For instance, uh, Carl Pagliani points out that the first uh, socialists, uh, recognizable socialists, were the levelers uh, in 17th century England, right? Uh, and they expressed demands for economic and political equality uh, in expressly religious terms. Uh, and... I think that there's always a danger whenever the left tries to flirt uh, with religion or to justify itself in religious terms that that religion can end up becoming a fetish or an idolatry uh, or even worse, become chauvinistic and exclusionary, right? So we can't have anything like that. Uh, however, uh, once we recognize that there is an egalitarian basis uh, to a lot of religions, then why wouldn't we turn to that kind of resource to try to agitate for constructive social change? Uh, and I think that's especially important in an American context where large number of peoples are attracted to religion, Christian religions and other kinds of religion. Uh, and if the left comes to them with the proposition that they should all be atheists, then they're very likely to sit there and say, well, what kind of meaning am I going to give to the struggle that goes beyond just me trying to get a better refrigerator uh, in my house? Right. Uh, and. I think this is also one of the reasons things like post-liberalism, for example, uh, kind of reactionary, uh, traditionalist Catholicism has been very appealing to a lot of young people, including a lot of young working class people, because it combines a critique of capitalism and a, compete, uh, a critique of liberalism uh, with this very reactionary, socially conservative kind of religion. Uh, and one of the things that we do at uh, the Institute of Christian Socialism is to try to rebut that and offer more progressive alternatives. Uh, there's a really good... Uh, Professor Dr. Obrey Hendricks uh, at Columbia University, who wrote a book called *The Politics of Jesus*, um, that does a good job summarizing um, kind of a foundation for how this could be carried out in America. So, I guess one point of kind of the theological is to ask, like, how do you approach the idea that obviously, yeah, in the Christian concept, we all are all all equal, but all equal in submission. Yeah, absolutely. And this is where I think things like materialist uh, theologies are really vital, right? So in my new book, The Emergence of Postmodernity, I talk a lot about uh, Zizek's interpretation of Christianity, uh, where his understanding of its essential theological insight is that uh, what you saw with Jesus's death uh, is 
God willingly sacrificing himself, if you want, uh, mm. to kind of make human beings uh, as equal participants, uh, or sorry, turn human beings into equal participants in the process of creation uh, and to give us the freedom to carry that out as we wish. Uh, so there's almost this kind of Promethean quality to it, right? Uh, now, I'm not sure that Zizek has all the answers uh, for how to go about doing that theoretically, but it's definitely an interesting step forward. Uh, and then another book that I point to is somebody like uh, Martin Hagelin's book, This Life, uh, where Martin Hagelin uh, argues for a kind of democratic socialism that's responsive to people's spiritual needs. Uh, he's much more atheistic than somebody like even Zizek is. Um, but he says, look, the left has done a bad job of catering to this desire people have uh, for a sense of answers to existential questions. Uh, it almost always tends to frame these in political terms without speaking to the kind of things that, say, Kierkegaard uh, or Nietzsche would talk about, right? Uh, and his book does a great job of trying to fill that gap. Uh, so there's some very good people doing interesting work on this. Or again, Dr. Oprey Hendricks, uh, who's linked a kind of uh, radical Christianity uh, with, an with an argument for civil rights, uh, welfare, and more economic egalitarianism, right? So I, mean, I think you're, you're definitely that right that the left has a very big problem with kind of how can we fight against contemporary nihilism and how can we, you know, offer like uh, solutions to problems which aren't just purely material, but how do we offer like a, a way for people to have greater meaning in their life and so on. But Christianity seems a strange solution to this in the sense that, well, you know, obviously Nietzsche said God is dead and God's dying if in the America very, very slowly. Uh, but for instance, That's in sure. the UK, um, the census came out last week and for the first time a majority of british people are no longer christian um a majority of people where, where i live in south wales it's like 50 60 percent atheist here um obviously the progress in the united states is slower but at the same time as i'm sure you're aware christianity is becoming kind of more solidified as you know like a, a struggle on from the right as as you yourself have mentioned while in the same time weakening among the rest of the population so in in these terms like why do you think that christianity as something obviously the problem that we have with nihilism is is because christianity isn't as strong as it was right that's the whole kind of mm -hmm. thing so how can going back to christianity kind of solve the problem that emerged out of we, we we're making this break in, in society from christianity well i'm not sure that the answer is necessarily to just go back uh in some kind of crude sense to christianity and say we used to do that let's just, yeah let, let, we used to do that. Let's do that again, right? There's no doing that, right? Uh, I'll give you an example uh, of somebody who I do think spoke to these kinds of needs, uh, albeit from a purely negative perspective. Uh, take someone like Mark Fisher, right? Uh, what made Mark Fisher a really inspiring figure on the political left uh, was that he didn't really engage too much in material analysis uh, of contemporary conditions. Uh, what he really spoke to was this feeling of emptiness uh, in a kind of post-historical time period uh, where we lived under the conditions of capitalist realism. All we saw was the endless recycling of older cultural artifacts. And so there was no meaning to people's lives because it couldn't actually make a unique contribution, right? Uh, and all this, obviously we all know what ended up happening to him and, you know, rest in peace, right? Uh, but I think that was appealing precisely because it did speak to leftists who have this feeling of nihilistic withdrawal from the world and they want somebody who speaks effectively to those notions uh now i think that looking at the history of religion uh for answers in how to speak to that is a good idea for a contemporary leftist and that's why i approve of what people like zizek or dr hendrix uh or hegland are doing uh, i'm really not sure what form this is going to take in the future 
Uh, I definitely don't think it's going to take the form of just going back to older ways of doing things. And I wouldn't approve of that because a lot of earlier religious or spiritual forms were chauvinistic, racist, misogynistic, you name it. And we can't have any of that, right? Uh, so I'm not a prophet. I don't have a crystal ball, right? Uh, but I do want us to be attentive to this dimension of human life uh, and to posit answers to social problems that show how it is that overcoming the limitations of capitalism will also be edifying for the kind of things that Mark Fisher speaks to, uh, rather than just the kind of things that, say, David Harvey speaks to. So the question becomes then, how exactly do we do that uh, from the perspective of the left, uh, since we are lacking in an organized, an organized, focused philosophical underpinning that brings cohesion to our various ideas, but we have so much fracture in a way that effectively compels us to demonstrate to the average American, the average Westerner, the average person, the average member of the proletariat, or if you will, lumpen proletariat, that we have a vision for a new society. I think that we need to talk about how do we create a vision for a new society. And one of the things that I like that you talked about is how one of the problems of the left is that we have been stuck in a mode, I would say, maybe since the era of postmodernism or post-structuralism, mm -hmm. in deconstructing, deconstructing empire, deconstructing capitalism, deconstructing marriage, deconstructing deconstructing all of these things that many people find as sacred institutions, mm -hmm. but without providing any kind of actual building of alternatives that demonstrate, well, this actually can work and provide you a way that answers the questions to what you need. And this is what our new society looks like. Everyone wants to tear down, but no one wants to build. How do we change those modes to where we're actually trying to build options instead of just trying to tear everything down? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Uh, and actually, this is one of the reasons why I turned to a reading of Nietzsche and some of these people in the first place. Because, you know, when I was growing up, the left was just committed to, uh, in critical theory, what we call, our critical legal studies, what we call trashing, right? Uh, our job was to get out there and trash any idol that people put forward uh, to create space uh, for people to try to conceive of alternatives, right? Uh, and what's interesting is that we did a lot of trashing and we did more trashing and more trashing and more trashing and nobody ever came up with alternatives because if you did put forward an alternative, somebody would come along and trash it, right? Uh, and it became really, really dissatisfying uh, after a point. Uh, and I remember when Bernie Sanders started to run in 2016, it was like a giant breath of fresh air uh, where I thought to myself, here's somebody who is actually genuinely putting forward a kind of alternative, uh, at least in the United States, to the status quo. Uh, and that alternative is democratic socialism, right, uh, as a kind of antidote to the prevailing neoliberal sentiments uh, of the era. Uh, and I think that what you said earlier, Pascal, is right, that one of the problems is that from an intellectual standpoint, we haven't done enough yet to intellectually make the case uh, for people like Bernie, and we certainly haven't convinced enough of the American population yet uh, that democratic socialism is what they need to sign off on. Uh, but I'm more optimistic, frankly, than I've been in a really long time, right? At least in an American context, because you have 100,000 people in DSA right now. Uh, you had the George Floyd protest that broke out in 2020, which was the first competition in a real long time uh, that was genuinely militant uh, in opposing racial uh, and the racial state. 
Uh, and, you know, uh, the fact that, you know, you have people like the squad doing a lot of good work, not as much as I'd like since AOC voted uh, to crush the rail strike. All these are signs for me that things might be improving. Like I said, I don't have a crystal ball, uh, but I'm hopeful. I uh, tend to buy into the Gramscian axiom, right? Uh, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. And I think that's what we need right now. Interesting. Stefan, do you have any thoughts? Um, not, partic not particularly. Just, I'd probably just reiterate what I said before. I mean, it was, it was, definitely, it was really interesting to read um, Matt's because I, I don't know. I think we were assigned just the introduction, but I also read the first chapter, which was written by Matt. And I was reading it. I was like, hmm, maybe I am just a reactionary. <laughs> you don't that say. That explain a lot, Stefan. You don't say. <laughs> we really need to clip the bit where I like do my little spiel, and then Jason comes in and says it's like the dumbest thing in the world. No, we're not going to clip that. I'm not Doug Lane. <laughs> yeah, Doug would do that. That's for sure. Jason, Justin you've been Fox, somewhat quiet. You, Jason, you've been somewhat quiet most of the show. You haven't had any of your normal input into your thoughts on Nietzschean philosophy. Oh, and I'm it, letting you smart people have it. Have the. I'm just. I'm just a dummy that doesn't know any better. According to stuff. <laughs> there you are. Yeah. See. See. Well, I should say it's funny too because you know fucking. When I, I pioneered this collection, a shocking number of progressive people I know, mostly intellectual types, emailed me being like, why are you picking on the guy? What are you doing? You know, he says a lot of good things criticizing religion. You know, do you want to support things like a return to Christo-nationalism or something? You know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I get a lot of those kinds of sentiments. I really do. Uh, it's not like I'm sitting there and I hate the guy. Uh I published this essay collection about him because I'm really interested in him. And I think that he has a lot to teach us. Uh, and what just frustrated me to a certain extent, and this is the more constructive bit of the project, is that Nietzsche speaks to an urge in people that the left isn't always very good at speaking to, right? This desire for a response to nihilism, right? Uh, yeah. And the problem is that his response to nihilism is we need to go back to aristocratic radicalism, hierarchy, uh, respect for difference, but difference understood is in terms of unequal people ruling over uh, the plebs or the slaves or the herd or whatever it happens to be. Uh, and a lot of this is really appealing to people on the alt-right. So my project right now, uh, kind of moving on this, is an effort to try to find a way to develop a leftist response to these feelings of nihilism. Uh, and I'm not 100% sure uh, of what form that's going to take. It needs to be one that's democratic, solidaristic, egalitarian, uh, response to capitalism. Uh, well, but these are really, yeah, really, I'm, early I'm, days, right? I'm publishing a book in a few months called How Not to Be a Teenage Nihilist. So you got to read that. You're real <laughs> well, old. Yeah, that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think that's what's really interesting about kind of the reaction to Nietzsche in that, you know, I'm a big fan of Nietzsche, as probably has been obvious in this show. But I'm completely aware that he's like right wing, really right wing. And it's interesting that your work in some ways does actually redeem Nietzsche in, in a certain sense because by arguing that he is in fact a right-wing thinker it stops him being the other thing that he would be otherwise which is in fact a nihilist right that why are you a fan right, of what made you a fan of nietzsche i think nietzsche is right that um there's a like we we that leftists a lot of leftists especially since the collapse of kind of the working class movement in the 1980s 
uh, valorize weakness um, and think weakness is good and they don't like it. They want to lose and um, yeah, they just despise strength when in fact, you know, it's not about strength and weakness, it's about who is strong and who is weak and who has the power and who doesn't. So Do you think that your definition of leftist is based on what you're experiencing in the postmodern, post-structuralist academic world? Hmm. Uh, no, because I think I was probably too young, really. I think it's, it's what I encountered kind of when I first went online. Um, but it's another form of kind of just this kind of disastrous outcome, like where we are intellectually since then. Where, like, you know, as I've talked about. In, in I don't hear anybody talking about MLK. Who was a big Nietzsche fan, which That's I found very interesting good in your writing, man. You he is. He was. You are you being? Are you fucking with me? Wait, no. You said that? Are you fucking with no. me, Stefan? Are you fucking with me? What? I don't think Who you knew that. You didn't know MLK I, was a Nietzsche guy. No, no idea. That's fascinating. It, it's like the Jordan Peterson of the 20th century. MLK. Yeah. Christian you think he wanted you to clean your room. <laughs> Actually, it's interesting you mentioned the MLK uh, because uh, I referred to Paul Tillich at the beginning, uh, and MLK wrote his thesis on uh, Paul Tillich, who also identified as a socialist of all things. Um, hold on, I'm, I, I forget the quote exactly. Power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without sentiment. You broke up a bit, Jason. Oh, uh, Pascal. No, I haven't heard it. I, I mean, Pascal. I mean you, you're, you're educating me. I never knew that Alvin Kell was into Nietzsche. I've, I've heard that he's quoted him, but I mean, that would be interesting. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you want, a good, I see a couple of people are asking, you know, uh, is there some kind of quote that kind of testifies to what you're talking about? I'll just give you this one from Twilight of the the idols uh where nietzsche is talking about equality christianity um and human rights actually he says the poison of the doctrine equal rights for all uh this has been more thoroughly so by christianity by, than by anything else from the most secret recesses of base instincts christianity has waged a war to the death against every feeling of reverence, and of reverence. what sorry matt you've you've gone like you've really you've made the problems oh can you hear me now no, you're, you're quite bad. Um, Can you hear me? The, the, <laughs> the, 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 the Nietzsche, big Nietzsche is hacking you and stopping you from being <laughs> yeah, heard. Is, yeah. uh, so anyway. Uh, oh, you're fine this, now. Fucking hell. All right, good. Can you guys uh, hear so me? Some people are asking. Okay, I know. Yes, we you're can hear you. You're okay now, Jason, yeah? Uh, yeah, this, I'm having super computer problems right now, um, which I think are affecting Matt as we speak. Um, but this is the ML. Okay, quote, Stefan. Power without love is reckless and abusive. And love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. And justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. Um, I would have been able to pull that up quicker, but NT isn't here. But uh, yeah, uh, MLK started reading Nietzsche, I think, in college. And that was one of the things that people would talk about. His father actually railed against him about what he said that you talk too much about these philosophers that no one understands. <laughs> I can understand. I can see Daddy King talking like that. 
Yeah. So when when MLK was going to step down and like take over his dad's church, when he got all that pushback from not supporting the war and and turning shifting his focus to a war on poverty, um, uh, opposed to just kind of these race first struggles, um, trying to go back and preach, he wanted to implement these teachings because he felt that there wasn't a real understanding uh, of power. So, um, oh. I, I completely agree. Actually, again. yeah, can you hear me? Uh, yeah, so, people okay. are just asking for a couple of references I see in the chat for this. So, I'll just give two from Twilight of the Idols. Uh, and there's a lot more, I mean, especially in the Antichrist and Ikehoma. Uh, so, this is from Twilight of the Idols, where he's talking about the poison uh, of the doctrine of equal rights for all, all you know, which is really quite telling in and of itself, right? Uh, the poison of the doctrine of equal rights for all. This has been more thoroughly sowed by Christianity than by anything else from the most secret recesses of base instincts. Christianity has waged a war to the death against every feeling of reverence and distance between man and man. And what he's referring here is uh, the intrinsic differences, inequality uh, between man and man. Right? Uh, that is the precondition of every elevation, every increase in culture. It is forced out of the resentment of the masses, its chief weapon against us. Okay? Uh, and then and this is a another quote from the Antichrist, that I'll just give you a sense of the flavor of what he's talking about, where he says, the aristocratic outlook uh, has been undermined most deeply by the lie uh, of equality of souls and the belief in the prerogative of the majority, uh, which makes revolutions and will continue to make them. Uh, it is Christianity, let there be no doubt about it, you know, it's not really being subtle there, Christian value judgment, which translates every revolution into mere crime and blood. Christianity is a revolt of everything that crawls along the ground against that which is elevated, the gospel of the lowly makes low. Uh, and this is him speaking about how it is that uh, Christianity influenced the French Revolution, the uh, English Revolution, and a wide variety. We had a bad audio during that. Whole <laughs> that was crazy. <laughs> when you finished quoting it, the last eight words were good. That's crazy. Yeah. Which, uh, which one did you hear? The Twilight of the Artist quote or the... Uh, it's crazy. All of it was at five times the speed. That's crazy. Okay. I'll try one more time and we'll see. Okay. You just start cutting off that second. Why don't why don't I read it? okay. Here, I'll send it to you. Every time you try to read it, it's it makes you go at five times the speed. I think because you have to read so much shit, your life is at five times the speed. That's fun. Okay. okay, give me a second. We're going <laughs> to... Here, I'll read it. The poison of the doctrine equal rights for all. This has been more thoroughly soured by Christianity than by anything else from the most secret recesses of base instincts. Christianity... God damn it, Matt. Slow down. Has... Oh, we lost Jason. And then Jason disconnected. We lost Jason and Chris. And... and, and, and and Where did I disconnect? Where did I disconnect? <laughs> like at Christianity. Christianity has waged a war to the death against every feeling of reverence and distance between man and man. Against that is the precondition of every evolution, every increase in culture. It has forged out of the resentment of the masses. Its chief weapon against us. That's the twilight of the idols. Okay, so I'll get. You one more. This is from the Antichrist. 
These are in the book, by the way. So wanna... look at it. Okay. <laughs> Stefan, you want to read this one? Outlook <laughs> has been undermined most deeply by the lie of the equality of souls. And if the belief in the prerogative of the majority makes revolutions and will continue to make them, it is Christianity. Let there be no doubt about it. Christian value judgment would translate every revolution into mere blood and crime. Christianity is a revolt of everything that crawls along the ground against that which is elevated. The gospel of the lowly makes low. Yeah. So, I mean, in case you, it, the message isn't clear, uh, since he says there is no doubt about it, right? He is very emphatic about the fact that, as he understands it, at the basis of all these revolutionary, democratic, socialist, and liberal movements, because he throws liberalism in there also, is this kind of Christian outlook of equal souls uh, and the slave morality uh, that is gradually becoming secularized. And he's clear about that, right? Uh, but he says that, you know, these are all just secularized Christian doctrines uh, that are carrying on with more or less the same ideas. Uh, and what they don't realize is that now that God is dead, we can abandon this notion that people are equal, uh, which was fundamentally this Christian idea, uh, and go back to a more natural way of looking at things. Uh, which is that, as he famously puts it, uh, there are eagles and there are sheep, and the sheep hate the eagle, and they might call him eagle, evil, but the eagle doesn't think anything about the sheep, right? The sheep are just there. He kind of has even a sense of benevolence to them uh, until he wants to eat them, right? That's the natural order of things, he thinks. Pascal? Uh, yeah, I'm not a fan of the dude. <laughs> <laughs> Putting it so blunt. Yeah, I think that's that's the thing that kind of people shouldn't be so resent, resentful of of Matt's apparent revealing about Nietzsche being obviously right wing because mm -hmm. you know he is, but also the fact that if he's not, then he doesn't have a solution. Like I don't know if, if Matt, if you remember the bit out of the spoke Zarathustra where Nietzsche like critiques the state, and at the end of that he doesn't give like some kind of fascist ramble. Instead, his solution is kind of like the res the retreat of aristocratic people towards places where kind of the state authority hasn't fully entered. And so kind of the solution, if not kind of the, the, the right-wing one, is just no solution at all. It's retreat, it's fleeing away from the modern world to which an potential extinction point. And while I don't really agree that in his main text, Nietzsche is political, in his unpublished texts, especially like nihilism in Europe, I think he is really making a turn towards right-wing politics and so on because he sees that his solutions in the previous texts, like that you'll see in Zarathustra, can't work because they're all just about retreat and about like a, a dying strand of people who obviously will just get fewer and fewer. Oh, I think his work is very much political, right? Uh, I mean, the best book on this subject is uh, the Marxist Domenico Lacerdo's book, uh, Nietzsche, the Aristocratic Radical, right? Uh, where... Uh, Nietzsche's friend wrote him a letter being like, I think of your politics as a kind of aristocratic radicalism. Uh, and he endorsed that view, right? Uh, and this encompassed virtually all uh, of the progressive movements, even ones that weren't all that progressive in his day. I'll read you another quote, and hopefully Big Nietzsche won't interfere with us, uh, from Twilight of the Idols. <laughs> it's a good term. Uh, where he says, where he takes aim at liberalism in particular, right? Liberalism, not even socialism or democracy. Uh, he says, liberal institutions cease to be liberal as soon as they are attained. Subsequently, there's nothing more harmful to freedom than liberal institutions. One knows indeed what they bring about. Oh, uh, they undermine oh. the will. Got it. Power. Got it. Can you hear me? We Is it working? 
Nope. Okay, sure. I'll send it. It's a fan. It's a fan. All right, you got to gotta pass Cal. I really through. like reading. I, I like this system because I like reading them out. So. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> it's okay. me right. reading on the Ethernet cables. All right, Matt, you got to copy and paste it for us. Yep. <laughs> Stefan, you're going to read this one. <laughs> liberal institutions cease to be liberal as soon as they're attained. Subsequently, there's nothing more mm -hmm. harmful to freedom than liberal institutions. One knows indeed what they bring about. They undermine the will, will to power. They're leveling, they are the leveling of, I guess there's a missing word. They make small, cowardly, and smug. It is the herd animal which triumphs with them every time. Liberalism, in plain words, reduction to the herd animal, and contrast re real freedom to the well-being demanded by the shopkeepers, <laughs> Christians, cows, and women. Oh, in the English, I think is the last word, which got cut off. English, yeah, of course. Englishmen and other Democrats, right? Uh, now, I, I think that he has a very clear kind of solution to this, right? And, and I want to point out, Nietzsche isn't even a kind of Grecian reactionary in the sense that he says we can just go back to Achilles uh, or Homer, right? Uh, what he says is that what he wants is a new kind of ubermensch that's going to emerge that has the kind of depth uh, of personality and intellect that you see only emerging in the Christian era, uh, but is nonetheless going to abandon Christian morality uh, and enact a great political project uh, or a kind of great politics, as Hugo Droken puts it. Uh, can you hear me now? Oh, we can hear you. Yeah, no, he's fine. He's laughing in the chat. And he's very expressive about this, right? Uh, where in Ike Homo, uh, and one of the more remarkable passages. Uh, he sits there and says, one day there will be wars fought in my name. Uh, and the world has not yet seen real kinds of wars. Right? Uh, and this isn't intended as some kind of criticism. Uh, he's really looking forward to it uh, because he sees this as a kind of testing ground uh, for the new kind of value systems that will come into being once we've abandoned the nihilism and egalitarianism uh, of our Judeo-Christian heritage. But are, are you unsympathetic to that quote about liberalism? Uh, I think that he's right to a certain extent, actually. I think that what you saw with the emergence of liberalism is one secularized version uh, of Christian doctrine, which holds that people are equal. Uh, and I don't think that all people are equal. And I don't think there's any denying that if you look at Locke or Hobbes uh, or any of the proto-liberals. They're all insistent on this idea that in the state of nature, people are fundamentally equal. Uh, I think that... In a, their conception of equality uh, was highly vacuous and highly selective. So, of course, we know that not denied equality to the working class, uh, people of color, indigenous people, and women. Uh, but Nietzsche's point is that over time, of course, more and more people bought in to these doctrines. Uh, and they became increasingly powerful so that by the 19th century, uh, he famously described Christian or socialism as Christianity with the residue of Rousseau. Uh, right, that was his definition in the will to power. Uh, it doesn't get much more exact than that, right? Yeah. Uh, Pascal, do you have anything you'd like to add? No, I, I mean, I, I, I think that this Dori, I can understand why this guy's considered the philosopher of the Third Reich. I can't stand him. I'm not a fan of the dude at all. I, you know, I think he has really kind of repressive, hierarchical, insanely, you know, right wing tendencies. Uh, you know, I, I mean, what I would say about the. <laughs> the the like Nietzsche and the Third Reich is it's exactly the liberal institutions of Germany and of Europe which facilitated 
the Nazis and the Holocaust without the liberal institutions, which upon their institutions stopped being liberal, the, the whole Nazi project would be impossible. And obviously that's kind of banal because of course fascism is impossible without liberalism. But, you know, liberal institutions are the things that have done history's greatest crimes, if not by kind of self-professed liberals. Well, I mean, oh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I mean, I, 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 th I think that liberalism has always been a pretext for hierarchies of capitalism and market-driven economies. Mm -hmm. All right, liberalism has never been about inclusion. All right, for the most, mm -hmm. for the greatest history of liberalism since its arrival with the rise of European philosophers and all of these wars, revolutions. They excluded the supermajority of the societies, whether they be women, people of color, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And they always allowed free market, free, free marketism, ownership of property that was not regulated in any way. So I'm not a fan of liberalism. But however, I also realize that that's not going to make me embrace fascism simply because fascism is a consequence that comes out of the failures of liberalism. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I mean, I should say that one of the things that, that's incumbent upon the left today uh, is for us to precisely go beyond liberalism, right? Uh, but I think what we need to be is attentive to what Nietzsche is saying, right, uh, on this point, which is that there is an egalitarian dimension to liberalism uh, that actually uh, in his middle period he was keen to reject. Uh, and Lacerda points out that he was attracted to the more hierarchical versions of liberalism that uh, Pascal was describing, right? Uh, but later on, he came to reject that uh, because he said that ultimately liberal movements have this bad tendency uh, of translating their idioms into more and more egalitarian kind of terminology, right? Uh, and so, for instance, he talks a great deal about how the labor question uh, was becoming very prevalent. And he writes a lot about labor questions, actually, in his work later on uh, in Germany uh, in the 19th century. Uh, and he says one of the reasons parties like the SPD we're beginning to gain ground is that liberals are having have a very hard time crushing working class movements because working class people will just say, hey, listen, we're entitled to political agitation under the conditions of freedom of assembly, freedom of speech that you yourself profess. Uh, and many liberals will say, well, I guess we have to give them the same rights that we do to everyone else, even if we don't like it. Uh, and Nietzsche says there shouldn't even be a labor question. Uh, and in one of his more infamous tasks, he said, if you want to have a society of workers who are compliant, uh, then you should educate them, as he puts it, to be slaves, right? Uh, you don't educate them that they have the same rights as everyone else and that they're allowed to organize and form political parties. Don't do that, right? Uh, what a fooling to do. Uh, so just to point, he can be very observant about what was going on in Germany at the time, uh, and he didn't like liberal movements because he saw them as being too permissive uh, to the socialist kind of parties that were emerging at the time, amongst other things. They have bad, bad features on their own merits. Sorry, we're giggling at chat. <laughs> and on that serious yeah. note, oh, you want to you want to end on a serious note, Stefan? Yeah, I just mean to say that um, you know we we there is surprisingly some kind of backlash to saying that Nietzsche was explicitly anti-socialist. And not just kind of not a specific version of socialism. I don't think, I think there's, I guess, a tendency to say, well, he's actually critiquing this kind of socialism, but actually Marxist socialism is, is not applicable to that. 
but no, he was a despiser of kind of, I mean, he was a despiser of any mass movement, basically. Like that's just the, the beginning and end of it really. Um, so I think it's important, um, even if I disagree with, with Matt a lot, that he publishes this, that it does ruffle some feathers and that, you know, it gets, and obviously we are moving towards this point. There's been lots of stuff reasserting that, that Nietzsche is on the right. Um, but I think it, it, it's, an, it's a good essay collection and it's, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. And I mean, I really strongly encourage people to go look at his extensive comments on things like the labor question, right? Uh, particularly his claim that the biggest mistake that the aristocrats in Germany and elsewhere made uh, was trying to educate the worker uh, to think that he had rights uh, of the sort that you get in the liberal democracy. Uh, and his explicit comment is, if you want to have a nation of slaves who will do what they're told, educate them to be slaves, right? Uh, that's what you should have done, right? Uh, it was a serious mistake to allow them any kind of opportunity to organize because now they're just doing what you would always expect them to do, uh, which is to agitate for more based upon these feelings of resentment for their rulers, right? Uh, and one of the goals of aristocratic radicalism, as he understands it, uh, is to have this much more tough-minded kind of approach to these questions. Uh, and again, this isn't original to me. If people want, they can go look at Domenico Lacerdo, probably the best Marxist theorist of the late 20th and early 21st century, and his thousand-page book, uh, which is just a huge chronicle uh, of everything Nietzsche said about politics. Thousand pages, right? Uh, and anybody who comes away with that thinking that Nietzsche has much good to say about left-wing movements, uh, I think is just <laughs> not looking seriously enough at the subject matter. I mean, to me, to me it's very simple. Nietzsche is the antithesis of Marx. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's <laughs> okay. Well, right. we, we can't go for another hour. <laughs> well, I mean, why do you disagree? Three. It doesn't take an hour. It takes you three sentences to say why you disagree. You like um, being flippant. Marx and, and Nietzsche were the big nineteenth-century critiques of of bourgeois liberalism and, and bourgeois morality. From an antithetical positions, though. If there was, if there was two people that were were, were key to moving us away from just critiquing morality and, you know, criticizing the moralism of the ruling class. It was Nietzsche and it was Marx. Yes, but from, but you, I mean, there's a dialectic here from two antithetical mm -hmm. positions. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And that's what's most interesting about it. So uh, there's a very good book by this, about this by Nancy Love called, um, it's either Nietzsche, Marx, and the Critique of Modernity, or sorry, Nietzsche, Marx, and Modernity, or Marx, Nietzsche, and Modernity. I can't remember. Anyway, she's also in the essay collection, so you can go read her. Uh, but one of the things that she stresses, uh, per Qua Pascal's comment, is they were both critical uh, of bourgeois morality and bourgeois modernity, and they both wanted to overcome it, uh, but in very, very different ways, right? Uh, Marx wanted to take what he saw as the achievement of bourgeois modernity uh, and advance it further, right, uh, to a society where, as he famously put it in Capital Volume 3, the development of human powers would finally be an end in and of itself. Uh, whereas Nietzsche wanted uh, to overcome modernity by turning towards a much more aristocratically radical kind of society uh, where the mass of people would be relocated back to the herd uh, and they would be used in the great projects uh, of the truly deserving. Right. Uh, and that is fundamentally different uh, than the communist or socialist project uh, of trying to achieve a world where the free development of each is the 
the precondition for the free development of all. Now, again, I don't think that Nietzsche doesn't have anything to teach the left. I think that we need to read him very carefully and very seriously and take what's valuable. Uh, but we should be under no illusions about what we're doing when we engage in those kinds of readings. The same way people, you know, read Carl Schmitt now and they find useful things to say about him in terms of critiquing liberalism. I have no problem with that, but let's be aware of what we're doing, right? Nietzsche, or sorry, Schmitt was a fascist, overtly one, right? And you want to take what's useful in him while chucking the rest, right? See, you didn't have to go another hour, Stefan. Don't sit there and whine. Uh, well, I mean, uh, for me, it's kind of, I, I don't think we should worry so much about what Nietzsche's solutions were. Like, we don't really worry that much about Marx's solutions. I mean, some people do, but I think Marxists, in fact, don't. Marxists are the ones, it'll be non-Marxists who say, like, why is he talking, was he like, did he like labor vouchers? Like, what's he going on about? Well, it's Marxists who were like, you know, he just kind of did, like, you shouldn't really worry about the solutions, like, that he was just kind of saying that stuff about labor vouchers, like trying it out, like actually will work out in the process. And I think that's, I think Matt's definitely right that Nietzsche's solutions are either right wing or nihilistic, basically. But I don't think we should worry too much about the solutions in the same way that we don't worry too much about the solutions in Marx. And instead that we should take Nietzsche's critique and, and Marx's critique of, of, of bourgeois society. And obviously the thing then to be obviously careful of is Nietzsche despised various things that we shouldn't despise. Um, but yeah. in terms of kind of striking against the whole project, um, both Marx and Nietzsche can be very much interesting in the same sense. I think the part of the problem is that we don't take the solutions of Marx seriously or the solutions of leftists seriously in terms of building a problem, a project that actually remedies the problems of capitalism. I think the, that's actually the problem is that we talk about the critique as opposed to the solution. Yeah, Absolutely. that's what Lenin's for. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's worth noting, again, the two major political responses to Nietzsche on the right uh, were both insincere, right? They both didn't take his project the way that he would have wanted it to be taken. Uh, one group went with it and pushed it in a fascist direction, uh, which he would have been very critical of because he was anti-nationalist, uh, despised anti-Semitism, uh, and he was very much a kind of individualist in that kind of way. Uh, another group went in a more individualist way uh, by trying to align his thinking with various different ways of supporting capitalism by saying, see, it's kind of a Nietzschean sorting mechanism where entrepreneurs are kind of ubermensch type figures creating new values, sometimes literally through new commodities. Uh, and that's the way to understand uh, his working uh, work. Uh, and he wouldn't have been comfortable with either of those because he also despised bourgeois economics and saw the lust after materialism and industrial power uh, as a kind of venal or low outlook, right? Uh, and But a lot of people have said, well, look at that. That means that he's actually a leftist, a closeted leftist, or he would have supported Marxism. Uh, and my response is to say, not at all, right? If anything, uh, his argument was that we need a more radical kind of aristocracy uh, than what is permissible under nationalism or under capitalism, uh, one that's going to look very different uh, than anything else that's what's available on the menu right now. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why he's attractive to many on the far right today, uh, because he's experimenting with these new kinds of inequality that haven't been existent before. Uh, and that's exactly what they're trying to do. Find new ways to justify inequality and new kinds of inequality. And on that note, thank you very much, Matt, for hanging out with us, for you guys watching the show. 
This extra 47 minutes of the show is why we call this the Saturday free show, as we don't end the show at an hour and go to the exclusive champagne room. We give you all the fun party talk for free. Thank you, Stefan, for joining us from across the pond and giving your pro Nietzsche right wing takes. <laughs> Crypto reactionaries on the show, right? <laughs> you thought you were on sublation for a second, huh? Um, no. Can I? Can I just? I'm teasing. You. Can I answer someone's um, question on Twitch? Yeah. Um, just because I couldn't answer it in the YouTube comments because I'm not, I'm not logged in on Twitch. But someone in, in Twitch was asking about the stuff with uh, Nietzsche's work being edited by his sister and kind of being Nazified or whatever. That only applies to Nietzsche's unpublished works and have subsequently been re-edited, so this isn't a problem. <laughs> yeah. Uh, someone called Matt a Christo-fascist. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, one of these days, I'm just going to set up my little theocracy, and you know, you'll all come and worship at my fucking altar, that's for sure. You know? My Christo-fascism will be a little bit different, though. Everyone's going to have to smoke a big blunt before they enter the church. Uh, and <laughs> and at the very least, Rage Against the Machine will be our world leaders in prayer. That'll be the idea. <laughs> Matt, I really enjoyed the conversation, man. Yeah, thanks, Pascal. You too. And hey, listen, if people are listening to this and they're getting angry at me being like, how dare you fucking attack, you know, a chair thinker who was important to me. I'm not trying to do that at all. Like I said, I read the guy when I was 18 and I thought it was just the most incredible thing that I had ever read. And it opened my eyes to so much. I am not fucking telling anybody that they shouldn't read Nietzsche. And I'm definitely not sitting there telling any leftist that if they shouldn't get anything from Nietzsche. I've gotten a ton of things from Nietzsche. My book draws very heavily on his account of how modernity and postmodernity emerged, right? Not saying that at all. What I'm just saying is that you need to look at him with both eyes open. Uh, and when you do what I used to do, uh, and you just kind of glaze over these things about creating slaves and aristocratic radicalism and go without a woman, bring a whip, you shouldn't glaze over those. You should take it seriously because he put it there for a fucking reason, right? He wanted you to pay attention to his arguments for inequality. Uh, so if you're <laughs> going to try to make use of him in the future, just be conscious of what it is that you're doing. You got a PS5 from Nietzsche. I have to read somewhere. First of all, MT is not here. And oh, really? You didn't hear her fucking voice the whole time? No, I thought she might just be deep on the cover. Someone <laughs> said earlier that she was here. No, she's, she's gone this week. She, uh, she's been banished. This is men's only. <laughs> <laughs> Just remember, as Frederick Nietzsche once said, knowledge is power. One of my old history professors. That's from Strom McCallum. I don't think Nietzsche said that. I think that's the point. And that's why it's Frederick Nietzsche. <laughs> and that is education in the South in a nutshell. <laughs> if you were wondering what education was like. In the South. Pascal, are you frozen or are you reading the comments? I was reading the comments. Don't do that. <laughs> uh, Kushluk says Spencer is is uh, is reading the spirit is feeling the spirit of Norm Finkelstein. Um, I'm I'm working out a live event with Finkelstein. You know his book's coming out. Finkelstein's book's coming out. 
and I'm trying to do a live event in NYC with Norm. So if if I get more details on that, if it actually happens, um, then I'll definitely be talking about it here. Um, Also, you know, was talking to Doug Lane about how to get Stefan over to this side of the pond. Uh, I believe if we try, we can smuggle him in a suitcase. (laughs) (laughs) So work on your uh, stretching and we can get you in a carry on. The the best thing about the, um, when you, when you go with a meet with a woman, bring a whip or whatever, quote Mm -hmm. from Nietzsche is that in the Zarathustra, it's like he uses it like in Zarathustra, it's framed like a novel with like characters. He makes a woman say that. Uh, well, someone, uh, Andy William actually made a joke about that in the chat. He said the reason why he read Nietzsche is because he watched the movie Coming to America. And Eddie Murphy actually gives a Nietzsche quote to a woman that he's trying to court. Right. So that is rather hilarious that you said that. And that led him down the path to reading Nietzsche. So shout out to Eddie Murphy. <laughs> educating. Speaking the truth to the young black youth. Another quote from a very popular uh, urban philosopher, um, Inspector Deck from, from Wu-Tang Clan, from the Wu-Tang School of Philosophy. I think uh, Pascal is well, well-versed in uh, I know the Wu- Wu-Tangian thought. Wu-Tang is for the children. <laughs> so Matt is stuck in his internet and he says thank you for oh. having him on. Oh, is he back? There he is. Yeah. I was wondering what the fuck happened. Um Yeah, yeah, sorry. I was gonna say actually did you I hear... just left. <laughs> maybe one of you can tell me about this? I heard that that asshole Scarelli uh bought one of the Wu Tang clan albums. And just destroy the thing so that nobody else could listen to it. It was like the one they only pressed one copy of. Is that true? Yeah, I heard about yeah, that. It, it he was it? They, they, they got it in the end. It came out. He did? Yeah. Well, thank God. Yeah, I should go listen to that today. Right? No, yeah. apparently they hated it. Oh, it's not a good album? Oh, that sucks. No, it was a cash grab on one of their one of the main people's parts. Um, watch, watch. There's a really good documentary on Wu-Tang. Um, where they're all sitting in a movie theater watching themselves talk about each other, and then they're like commenting on it. And when the Martin Screlly thing happens, they all get super angry. Yeah, well, can you blame them? I might. <laughs> Martin, Martin Screlly is basically like Bernie's nightmare given like material form, like just the worst capitalist piece of shit that you could possibly imagine. And when I heard that he was messing with Wu Tang, uh, I was like, God damn it! Like if I don't believe in the death penalty, but if they could reinstate it in <laughs> your state Martin just Scrooge. for you and then get rid of it forever, then I wouldn't exactly cry myself to sleep. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, there's, there's Wu-Tangian thought about how to handle the Martin Squarellies of the world as well. That's true. <laughs> uh, but listen, it was great talking to you guys. Uh, I can see that we had some spicy responses um, <laughs> in the chat. But um, you, well, ask- you, you pissed off Spencer Leonard. Spencer Leonard. Shout out to Spencer Leonard. Also, by the way. Hey, uh, yeah, you, shout out to him. Uh, you, you, you pissed off Spencer. So now there's got to be like some sort of joust to see who's right. 
philosopher beef. We have a philosopher beef on uh, philosopher beef, but I would let, handle it in a ring. But you guys can only fight like this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We'll just throw but books at each other, right? You know, <laughs> they'll just throw like one, a couple of bunch of small Nietzsche books at me, and I'll just pick up Das Kapital and whip it at his head. So I'll only get one shot, but because it's a thousand pages, you know, all I need is one shot. Right? I, I will say this: Spencer is like six five. Spencer's That's okay. I'm six two, so I'm not that afraid. Oh shit! It's a battle of the giants, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> Matt McMahon is coming in at six two, two hundred twenty five pounds, facing the six five Spencer Leonard. Coming in at a whopping two six to five. Yeah, I know it'd be scary, but you know, maybe that's the way we can make some money on the left. You know, we're always a little bit uh, fucking underfunded. We'll just fucking have. <laughs> I think Spencer's battles. definitely not two six five. <laughs> Spencer's, I would, you know, hey, now we're calling out Spencer right now. The motherfucker's gonna be so mad. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think he, he's a, a healthy and skinny. Spencer, you are not six one. You were six one fucking four inches ago. Yeah, Spencer's a nice guy also, right? Um, he was actually one of the people who encouraged me to write for Sublation back in the day, so I got no beef with him. Uh, no, but, you know, if it'll make money for the left for us to fight about Nietzsche and Marx, then, you know, I'll be willing to do it for the cause. For the cause. Okay, look, we have to we have to put this up. I'm going to put this up because, wait, damn it, my computer. <laughs> Not that. This is from Spencer. He says, Matt's cool. Thanks, buddy. I, I agreed also, right? Uh <laughs> You know, it's so fucking funny, too, because I had we back when I was on the pill pod, we had a discussion about Nietzsche also, and it almost led to like a fist fight. It reminded, me of this, <laughs> it reminded me of this fucking thing that happened in Russia back in the day, where apparently a man shot another dude over how to interpret Kant's categorical imperative, which is ironic. <laughs> you think that, I don't know if Kant would approve of doing that, right? You hear quite a lot of this stuff from Russia, and the real tragedy is that no one ever says what side the two guys were on. Yeah, I know, right? I want to know if the killer was right. I know, but I'm like, I don't know. I don't care what your fucking interpretation is. No matter how dedicated Kant is to get people getting him right, I don't think he would sit there and say, act in such a way that if people misinterpret the critique of pure reason, you blow their fucking head off, right? Just I, I think that also out. the really interesting thing about it was that this happened in Russia, but it happened in Kaliningrad, which was it? obviously really? oh, okay. used so to be East Prussia, where yeah. um, Kant used to hang. Oh, well, that makes sense. Yeah, they're closer to, uh, you know, the home territory and stuff. Uh, but anyway, yeah, no, I had a good time talking about this. And I, I wanted to stay also to fan, right? I'm, I don't have any kind of beef or anything. Like, it's just, um, I understand that you like the guy a lot. And I'm sure that you do a lot of interesting things with him in his work, your work. So I agree with Mao, you know, let a thousand different interpretations of Nietzsche bloom. Uh, and we'll see which one happens to be the most persuasive and maybe it'll be healthy for the left. Who knows? That sounds like something you say before you about to slap the shit out of somebody. <laughs> yeah. I got no beef. I got no beef. Just like, fucking yeah, have right. a day. <laughs> 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 guy telling, I don't want to fight you as he gets closer and closer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I, you know what? I always used to say this to my friends, right? I'm like, I don't often like to get into fights. Uh, Unless it's with trashy right-wingers, I do enjoy doing that a lot. Some might even say it's uh, my reason for being at this point. But when I do get into a fight, I like to win. So I thought you were going to say trashy white women. I was like, what? And then you said right-wingers. So then I was like, oh, my <laughs> even if that was true, my wife would get a hold of this, and then she'd fucking put a gun to my head, and that would be the end of that. So, no, I was like, you, no, leave, no, no. you leave my girlfriend out of this. Just kidding. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> 
And that's how you get demonetized. This is going badly. All right. Stefan put on a sport coat for the event. So we do have to show that off. Can you give us a little twirl, Stefan, before we go? Look at this. Oh, oh my goodness. Look at that. Oh. The waist. Look at that waistline. Look at that young man. Shout out. That's fast. Stefan. Putting on a sport coat. And I'm wearing a denim jacket. So always one up it. He's got hair and a sport coat. Son of a bitch. You it makes me feel better, Jason. You know, I started the semester by wearing like nice things because you know my wife was like, you know, you're at a big boy university now, so you want to dress like professional and stuff. The other day, all my students came to class in hoodies. One of them was like just drinking a giant coffee, and I was like, you know what, fuck it, I'm giving up. <laughs> From now on, it's just jeans and a t-shirt. We're back to that. <laughs> and you know, what? the students liked it. They're like, we like this more casual version of you. And I was like, see, you know. So, all right. Matt, thank you. Pascal, Stefan, Spencer, all your angry Gene. talk. Gene Bajlan for hooking this show up. Thank you very much. And we will see you guys Tuesday. Oh, yeah. And uh, good luck in New York, by the way, guys. Uh, I'm super, super jealous that you get to go to that. Um, I love New York. It's a great city. So, uh, Convert the masses, and you know I hope to hear that there's a revolution that breaks out sometime in January, and I'll take the train and. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. We are out. Peace.